Oh, man. Hey, good morning to you guys. Uh, online campus, hello. North Avenue, hello. And dads, I know Dwight already said it, but to my fellow dads out there, happy Father's Day to you. Oh, man, what a great day. Yeah. Let's give it up for the dads. Pour it on, pour it on. Come on, come on, come on. Nice. Uh, you know, I'm not doing a Father's Day sermon or anything today, uh, but I just want to say briefly here as we begin our message, uh, dads, you matter so much. You matter uh, more than you know. I, it's, a, it's such an important job and calling to be a dad. Moms, you know, we love you too. Uh, we got to celebrate you last month, so let dads have this moment, okay? Uh, it is such an important uh, thing. Your presence, your time, your, your provision, your teaching, your laughter, and your playing, all of that matters so much. I was reminded of this last month. I was out of town by myself for a little while. I went to go visit a friend, and while I was gone, I was gone for five days. Uh, now, my wife, Taylor, she's awesome. She keeps our boys busy. She keeps them entertained. She's way better at that than I am. So I thought, okay, no problem. I'll be gone. Kids won't even notice. But day two of my trip, Taylor calls me, and she's talking. She's like, man, the kids just keep saying, where's dad? We want him to come home. We miss him so much. Uh, and I was just reminded that, you know, just me being around matters to my kids because I matter to my kids as their dad. So dads, I just want to say you matter so much. You do. You matter so much. And all you guys who have stepped into that father-type role, whether stepdad or granddad or coach, teacher, mentor, whatever role you fill, you matter as well. And we just, we thank you so much for what you do and for just being you. And to say thanks to you dads out there, and this is for the guys, ladies, you had this, you know, you had this opportunity last month. Guys, we want to buy you ice cream. We want to buy you ice cream. So if you go on our church website, EssexAlliance.org, you'll see a little place that, that'll pop up. You can uh, click on it, brings you to the certificate, print that out. I think you have to print it out. And uh, you can bring that to either Al's in South Burlington, uh, Palmer Lane in Jericho, or Village Scoop in Colchester, and have a, enjoy a creamy on us. We'd just love to say thanks in that way. I'm probably going to just on my way home stop and get mine, so... Um. If you beat me there, congrats. Uh, but we want to say thanks. Enjoy an ice cream on us. And that's good through next Sunday. So you got this week to take, uh, to take care of that. But it's good through next Sunday. Okay, enough of that. Enough dad talk. Uh, we're going to start today just a, a two-week series as we sort of wrap up June and kick off summer, right? School's ended. Uh, camps are starting. I know my kids are already in camp. And uh, the beach is a, it's a hot spot right now. And, and really, this is the, the season we all live in Vermont for, right? These, these very brief few weeks of summer where we can like, really enjoy where we live. Uh, so we're going to start a two-week series as we kick off summer. Uh, it has nothing to do with summer. This two-week series, uh, but I, along with uh, pastoring our North Avenue campus, I serve our church as pastor of discipleship, and you might be saying, what does that mean? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Discipleship is one of these like Christianese type buzzwords that uh, church people, we love to say, we love to use and sort of throw it around. It has a very rich and important meaning, but sometimes we, we neglect to define it or really take time to explain what it means to, to people who might not have ever heard that word before or are new to the church. And we take for granted that not everyone has heard a word like discipleship. So what does it mean? What does it look like? How, you know, how do we do it? All that. And when we, when we neglect to talk about it and define it, and uh, it forces people to sort of fake it till you make it, right? Just sort of sit there and nod your head and hope eventually you're going to figure out what it means as we go along here, right? Uh, back, in, back in grad school, 
it was my second year of grad school, I signed up to take this class called Ethical Theory. And I was uh, pretty excited about uh, this course. Uh, we were gonna be looking at uh, sort of these historical approaches to ethics and morality and talking about the philosophers and thinkers who sort of espouse these different theories. And I was really excited to take this course. I'd never studied ethics before, especially not in this way. And I said, you know, I'm really interested in this. So I, I signed up to take the course and I showed up to the first day and uh, our professor uh, started talking to us as if we all knew what, what he was talking about. You know, he's sitting there talking, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna dive into the deontological approach and the, and the categorical imperative through Kant's lens, and then we're gonna talk about the teleological, and I'm, I'm sitting there just like, oh no. <laughs> and I look around at my, at my fellow students, and they're all sitting there like, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they raise their hand, and they ask questions with big words, and I, and I felt, I was, oh no, I'm in the wrong place. What am I gonna do? And I, I, I really had to catch up on the language and terminology just because I'd never studied ethics before in that way. So uh, I had to fake it for a while, <laughs> nod my head, uh, keep quiet and hope I figured things out as we went along. And, and that kind of puts you at a disadvantage, puts you at a disadvantage. And I don't want that to be the case with us as a church. Uh, so pastor discipleship, I want to take these two weeks to talk about that subject of discipleship. And how I want to do this is I want to look at this subject by looking at Jesus, his first disciples, those 12 those 12 men that physically followed Jesus around and, and what it looked like for them and then sort of extract from their experience what that might look like and mean for us today. So discipleship like the 12. That's what we're going to talk about these two weeks. Discipleship like the 12. Uh, so today we're going to look uh, big picture at discipleship and sort of define it and why we define it that way, or at least I define it that way. And then uh, we're going to look at the 12 disciples in Jesus. And when I look at them, I really see three key ingredients to what discipleship looked like, their process, how it was worked and accomplished in Jesus and his disciples. So today we'll define it. We'll look big picture. We will talk about one of those three. And then next week we'll talk about the other two. We'll come back and cover those two things and wrap up. So we're going to start today by defining what discipleship means. What does discipleship mean? Now, uh, I want to say to uh, some of you who've been around for a little while, you've probably heard some of this before. And I just, if, even if you can repeat verbatim some of the things I'm going to say today, just stick with me. We're going to tie a nice little bow together as we talk about this stuff. So uh, we're going to define discipleship. And here's my definition of discipleship. And then I'll tell you how I arrived at this definition. So how I would define discipleship is this. Discipleship is the ongoing process by which we become more like Jesus. Discipleship is the ongoing process by which we become more like Jesus. That's how I would define discipleship. Why do I define it this way? Let me give you three reasons why I define discipleship this way. The first reason is that one of God's goals for our lives is our transformation, to progressively, as we live and live out our faith, progressively to look more and more like Jesus, to be transformed, to look more like Jesus. Uh, here's just a verse from Romans, Romans 8.29. It says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, big word, to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In this verse, it's telling us that God has destined us his desire for us is to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to be formed and fashioned by him over time 
to look more like Jesus. And there are, there are many other passages that sort of make this point as well. So God's goal, one of his goals for us is for us to continuously, is for him to continuously form us to look more like Jesus in our character and our holiness and how we act, how we think, how we live, how we serve, all of that. So that's one reason for my definition of discipleship. Second reason is this. The word we translate in English as disciple in our Bibles, we see that word disciple a lot, the Greek word is this Greek word mathetes. And I think the best concept for how we really understand disciple, mathetes, this word, is uh, the concept in the word apprentice. Apprentice. An apprentice is someone who learns a skill or a trade from a master in that skill or trade, right? The information, the technique, all the how-tos, the passion, and the patience required for whatever that skill or trade might be, right? And in the ancient world, disciples, they were all over the place. Uh, you could be a disciple or an apprentice of a carpenter or a blacksmith, right? Learning that trade from a master in that trade. You could also be a disciple or apprentice of a philosopher or teacher. Someone like Socrates had disciples. Apprenticing with them to learn what they know and to teach like they teach. And in ancient Israel, the world that Jesus comes about in, about 2,000 years ago, you could be a disciple or an apprentice of a rabbi. Typically, a rabbi or um, a master teacher of Jewish law and thought would have a small group of disciples, apprentices, who would follow him around and learn to think like him and learn to act like him and talk like him and teach like him and, and live like him. It wasn't just about knowledge. It was more than knowledge. And the disciple of a rabbi didn't just learn about God or about the scriptures or about the law but learned how to live it and apply it and teach it just like their rabbi did. And the rabbi's job was to replicate himself and his disciples. And the disciple's job, the apprentice's job, was to, in every aspect of life, holistically we might say, become like their rabbi. Jesus says these words in Luke 6.40. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So grabbing onto that concept. The goal of the disciple is not simply to learn from their teacher, but to become like their teacher. How they think, how they teach, how they apply it, and how they live it. Disciple's job is to become like their master. That's the second reason I define discipleship the way I do. The third reason is uh, this is what Jesus calls his disciples to what to do and to be. Let's, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus' first words to his disciples, his first call to his would-be disciples. It says uh, these words, in, in, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. So his call, his first, very first thing he says to his would-be disciples is, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or as uh, other translations put it, I will make you fishers of men. What do you mean by that? Not like a fisherman plucks fish out of the water. He 
gathers them in their net. Jesus has come into the world to gather his people, to gather God's people under his name. And he's telling his disciples here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how to fish for people. You're going to learn to do what I'm doing, gathering people and drawing them out under my name. And it's interesting, I think this is so interesting, that this is Jesus' first words to his disciples in the book of Matthew. If we go to his last words to his disciples in the book of Matthew, a passage that you've probably heard, we call it the Great Commission. He says this, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he, he goes on a little. There's a parallel concept in these two passages, the first and the last words of Jesus to his disciples here in Matthew. And I think they help to define one another. First, Jesus says, you're going to send you out to fish for people, and then he sends them out to make disciples, right? Fishing for people, I think, means making disciples, gathering them. That's what Jesus is doing. He's making disciples. I'll make you fishers of men. He'll gather people out of the waters to a new purpose and a new way of life. Jesus says, you're going to do what I'm going to do. And that's his call to his disciples. So uh, again, here's that definition. Discipleship is the ongoing process by which we become more like Jesus. That's how I define discipleship. And those are the three reasons why. Discipleship is a process. Sort of a mysterious process. It's multifaceted. There's no one right approach or answer for how it all works, right? There's no one program or church that's really nailed it down. Uh, there are different methods, different uh, techniques, and oh, the Holy Spirit's involved too, which is not something that we can control in the process. And, uh, and it lasts our whole lives. It's ongoing. It's never complete until we <laughs> see Jesus face to face. So yes, uh, discipleship for us today, and we call it an ongoing process. It's not a straight line. There's no step-by-step, surefire way to achieve that desired result. But there are some principles that help facilitate this process that we can commit to as individuals and as a church that will help us to fulfill this calling of looking more and more like the one we follow, Jesus. So looking at Jesus and his disciples, the twelve... I think that can give us a good idea. How do we do discipleship like the 12? Well, I mentioned I I see three key ingredients in the discipleship soup, we'll say, of Jesus and his 12. And we're going to talk about one of them today, and then next week, like I said, we'll come back and we'll finish up with the other two. So let me just tell you what those three ingredients are, and then we'll start it on that first one. So the three key ingredients of how we accomplish or might accomplish discipleship Number one is sitting at Jesus' feet. That's what we'll talk about today. And next week, we'll talk about practicing and doing it together. So those are the three key ingredients. Sitting at Jesus' feet, practicing, doing it together. So we'll talk about that first one today. Sitting at Jesus' feet. Let's dig in. Uh, When I say that, it's sort of a metaphorical way of of saying that uh, we learn from Jesus, right? Sitting at Jesus' feet, we learn from him. It's a it's sort of a classical description of, of teacher and student sitting at the feet. You can almost picture it, right? Jesus sitting there, his disciples sort of sitting around him at his feet. 
attention, looking, listening, sitting there. It's a, it's a position of the student sitting at Jesus' feet. It describes Jesus' as teacher and his disciples, the 12, and us as his students, his learners. And Jesus taught his disciples. He was their teacher, and he taught them a lot. And if you look through the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and beyond, you can, you can see that Jesus taught them a lot, and you can see everything Jesus taught them. He taught them about who God is. He taught them about who he is and what he's doing. He taught them how to pray. He taught them how to properly give money to the poor. He taught them how to worship. He taught them about the scriptures and how to interpret them. He taught them about the Holy Spirit taught them that he had to die on the cross and resurrect, and he taught them about what life would be like when he was gone, that there would be uh, persecution, that there would be hope, that there would be mission involved in all that, and, and he taught them so, so much more. And if you were to go back and comb through the scriptures and see these moments where Jesus is teaching his disciples, I think you would see that he wasn't just teaching them what to think. Jesus was not saying, here's the stuff you need to memorize if you're going to get to heaven or anything like that. He's not giving them facts to be memorized. Jesus was teaching them to see things differently. Everything Jesus was teaching his disciples was turning their perspective upside down. See, at the time, Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, had been steeped in generations of the teaching of uh, the Pharisees, which says things like, if we're going to remain in God's favor, we have to keep the law at all costs. We have to do it all. They said that the Gentiles were outside of God's favor. They were outside the plan and purposes of God. Only Israel was God's people. They taught that forgiveness was contingent on my ability to come to the temple and offer a sacrifice there. And the disciples were reared in this thought process. And as they sit at Jesus' feet, when he's teaching them, what he's doing is showing them a new way to look at the world around them and interpret it and approach it through a new perspective, the perspective of, of God's grace being enacted in the world in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is showing them over time, over his whole time with these guys, that the hopes and dreams of Israel no longer rested on how well they could keep the law and do everything that it said. It, that uh, the, the Gentiles, the other nations, were... Uh, <laughs> That grace was open to them, and it wasn't just for the, for the people of Israel. And he's teaching them that forgiveness is available if you come in a genuine spirit of repentance. Because, and this is the key to it all, things had changed. All that other stuff, the law, the worship, the sacrifices, all of that was really about Jesus all along. And now the Messiah, Jesus, had come. And through faith-filled relationship with him comes reconciliation, comes resurrection. It's not through that other stuff. It's through him. And bit by bit, piece by piece, Jesus is revealing to his disciples this new way of seeing the world through the lens of God's grace fulfilled in the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he would say things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. Uh, for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. You know, and he'd, he'd say things like this. And he used these teaching moments 
to point at himself, Jesus would, to point at himself and say, God has sent me to extend his grace to the world. And it's from that perspective that he's showing them how to view everything else. You know, teaching someone to shift perspective is not easy. It's not an easy process. It takes time. And often it takes multiple methods for it to really sink in into people's minds. Let me, let me give you a little uh, preaching 101 behind the scenes lesson here. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Jeffrey Arthurs, he was one of my preaching instructors. He would always tell us, uh, if something's important, you can't over-communicate it. You can't say it enough. If there's something you want your people to know, your congregation, say it over and over and over. Whether it's the big idea of your sermon, whether it's a vision of your church, whether it's something you're trying to get them to do, just keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it, and uh, say it until they're sick of it. And he would encourage us, over-communicate uh, and find different ways to communicate it because uh, once you guys finally say something like, hey, Matt, we've heard it before. We're tired of you saying that. Okay, that's probably at the point where you're finally starting to get it. And that's the, sort of the theory behind this sort of communication. And it's not just saying it wrote over and over again, but finding different ways to say it, rewording it, rephrasing it, using metaphors, using stories to make the point over and over and keep hammering it home. Jesus was masterful at using a variety of methods of teaching to hammer his point home to his disciples. He used a variety of different teaching methods as his disciples sat at his feet. And looking again through the Gospels, you can, you can note the different teaching methods. Jesus would explain things to them, just very plainly. He'd explain things. You go to the Sermon on the Mount, there's Jesus, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, explaining a bunch of stuff to his disciples, just straight up explaining it. Uh, he would answer his disciples' questions. That's a great method of teaching. They come with a question, hey, Jesus, uh, why do you speak in parables? Hey, Jesus, why does it say that Elijah has to come back first before the Messiah comes? And he'd take that time to stop and answer their questions. Jesus used, uh, he used object lessons. He'd use physical, sort of tangible things to make his point. In Mark chapters 9 and 10, Jesus is sitting with his disciples teaching them, and he brings in this kid, like a child, and he puts it in front of them and says, if you're going to get in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be like a child, right? And he uses that child as an object lesson, a, a, a visual, physical, tangible thing they could point to to make his point. He used that method of teaching. Uh, he, he would often debrief his interactions with his disciples. With the Pharisees, it was negative. Here's why. And he'd talk about that with them. Debrief his interactions as a teaching method. Jesus used miracles to teach. He used his miracles as teaching moments. The disciples are in the boat in, um, in, uh, in middle chapters of Mark. I forget exactly where. And, and there's Jesus is sleeping and there's a storm and the boat's rocking. And the disciples are, oh, we're going to die, Jesus. And they wake him up and, and, Jesus, and Jesus calms the storm. And the disciples go, oh, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You know, he, he uses that as an example. Or John chapter 6. Feeding of the 5,000. That's a very long chapter, and 80% of it is dedicated to Jesus talking about the miracle, not the miracle itself, and teaching about that. He used miracles to teach. Jesus also used example. Talked about this a few weeks ago. In uh, John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he says, hey, this is an example of the kind of way you're supposed to love each other. Humble and serving and all that. He used himself as an example. He's a master teacher, and his disciples sat at his feet. And he used all these tools at his disposal to help his disciples learn. To learn from him, to learn about him, and to learn to see things from this grace-fulfilled perspective 
that the Messiah had now come. So discipleship, it's the process by which, the ongoing process by which we become more like Jesus. It involves, first and foremost, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him and learning about him. We can take it from one of the 12. Peter, one of the 12. He ends his second letter in the New Testament with these words in 2 Peter chapter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter, one of the 12, who sat at Jesus' feet, who knew him, who learned from him, says to the church, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And I think when he says that, he connects very intimately grace with knowing Jesus. Grow in both of those things. If we're going to grow in our ability to see things from this grace-filled perspective, to extend grace, to live in grace, we also have to grow in our relationship, our knowing of Jesus. Knowing him, knowing about him, what he said, what he did. His death, his resurrection, his actions, and grow in our knowing of him and everything he is. To do discipleship like the 12, we have to sit at Jesus' feet. So how do we do it? That's the big question. Unlike the 12, there's no feet for us to sit at, right? He's not physically here with us. How do we sit at his feet if there's no feet to sit at? Well, unfortunately, I don't have anything profound to say to you at this moment. And in fact, most of you probably know what I'm about to say. How do we best sit at Jesus' feet, learn from him, learn about him? who he is, what he did, to see things like he sees them. The number one way that we can do that is by opening the pages of our Bibles. Because that's where he's found. Uh, Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is just so profoundly simple and true. I I read it this week and I was just struck by it. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century author and thinker. He says, we come to scripture not to learn a subject but to steep ourselves in a person. In the pages of our Bibles, we find, we find the person. We find Jesus. And in and, and reading it, we, we know him. And, and we can sit at his feet and learn from him. So as we start to come to the end of our time this morning, uh, I just want to say two, two things about sitting at Jesus' feet today, reading our Bibles and finding him in the pages there. So just two things I wanna say about that. Number one is do it on your own. Read the Bible on your own. Seriously, take time, open up the pages and read it. And I'm not saying that there's like some program you have to follow where if you don't read it for 15 to 20 minutes a day that you're never going to know Jesus. I'm not saying that. You know, I've, I myself, have you, any of you ever seen that one-year Bible where it's broken up into 365 days? I've gotten to February so many times in that thing, and I just had to give up. But uh, find a way that works for you. Take your time and, and to really... Read it and internalize it. And maybe that's reading a chapter or two at a time. Maybe it's just taking a verse or two and just sort of thinking about it and meditating on it for a few minutes. The point of it is to know Jesus. It's not to read it just to read it or to check off a list. Look, I did it. I'm a good Christian now, right? It's to really internalize it and know Jesus. And as we think about that, I just want to offer a simple method. This is how I at least try to do my Bible study times. Let me offer you a simple method for coming to the pages of scripture as a way of 
internalizing it, reading it, and soaking it up and finding Jesus in the pages. Uh, it's called the inductive method. Let me say inductive Bible study. That sounds like a big scary thing that you need a classroom to do, and you don't. It's just a way of investigating scripture to, to really pull meaning out of it, to internalize it, and to let it speak to you. So inductive Bible study, and you can Google this. There's so many great resources out there to help you through this. So I'll just give you the nutshell version. Inductive Bible study is three steps. Three steps. You open your passage, you read it. There's three things you're going to do. Number one is you're going to observe. Number two is you're going to interpret. And number three, you're going to apply. Observe, interpret, apply. Three words. Pretty simple. You can go through each of these steps. So you go to your passage, you read it. And the first thing you're going to do, step one, is to observe. And you're going to ask the question, what does it say? What does it say? What's on the page? And this step is really just about seeing what's there in what you've read. And you need to really fight the urge at this time to try to pull out meaning and that sort of stuff. You're simply just observing what's there. Uh, you can kind of pretend you're an investigator gathering the facts, right? You're, you're finding clues. In this step of what does it say, observation, you're going to ask the five W's and one H, right? Who, what, where, when, why, how? Who's, in, who's talking? Who's being talked to, right? Figure that out. Where are they? Are they in Jerusalem? Are they uh, in Galilee in the countryside? Is, is Paul in Macedonia with the Gentiles? Like, where are they? When is it? Is it nighttime? Is it daytime? Is it during a festival? All those little details kind of matter. So as you read, you're going to ask those questions. You're going to find clues. And uh, at this, in this stage, I like to write down any keywords I find. Does anything repeat? Does a word pop up or a concept over and over again throughout these, the verses that I've read? Uh, is there any comparing or contrasting? Is there a, words that indicate a change in setting or time? Anything like that that can help you sort of get a grasp of what's going on. I also, in this step, write down questions. I have notepads on my desk that just says, what's that mean? What's this word? And I just write down questions. So that's the observe step, number one. After you observe, you're going to interpret. Step two, interpret. And in this step, you're going you're gonna to ask the question, what does it mean? All right, observe the text, see what it says. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? You look at what you've gathered in step one, and then you can start to, to look beyond that a little bit, right? What's the context of the past? What happened right before this? What happens after it? What book of the Bible is it in? What's the literary style? Is it a poem? Is it a song? Is it a narrative? All that stuff. And uh, you can even say, uh, what does this remind me of? I've heard of this character elsewhere. And you can go back and look at that character. I've heard this concept somewhere else. And you can use the whole Bible to start to interpret that passage. And in this step, it's always good to have extra help. This is when I start to look up articles or videos or open a book and try to find someone else who's way smarter than me to help me understand what's on the page there. So uh, it's always good to have extra help, anything that you can find to help you understand it, to help bring the meaning out to you. And it's important in this part where we interpret to try to avoid putting our own meaning into what's in the Bible, right? We, we have our own assumptions. We have our own, you know, tunnel vision. We have our own things that we've heard before. And that can all cloud how we might receive it and interpret it. And the goal is to let the Bible speak to us. And it's really easy to manipulate the words of Scripture to kind of mean whatever you want them to mean. We want to allow the Bible to determine how we understand it, not the other way around. So that's the second step, interpret. Uh, third step is apply, applying it to our lives. And in this step, you're going to ask the question, what do I do about it? Right, I get what it means, but what, is, what do I do about what it means? 
Knowing Jesus isn't an intellectual exercise. No, it's a, it's a transformational one. He wants us to be more like him in how we think, how we act, how we live, all of that. So in light of everything I've learned about this passage now, what, now what do I do? How am I going to live? What am I going to change? What am I going to start doing or stop doing? Who am I going to forgive? This passage is calling me to forgiveness. I know I need to forgive that person. Where am I going to serve? Ask that question. What am I going to do about it? And this step opens us up to that transformational thing that God is doing, right? Becoming more like Jesus. This is part of that process of looking more like him. So that's a nutshell version of the inductive method. Observe, interpret, apply. Again, you can Google that. You'll find great articles and, and tips from um, organizations like Logos or InterVarsity and Navigators. Tons of, tons of places where this is outlined in more depth with more helpful tips than I can give you today. But I'd say I encourage you, try it out. It's a great way to know Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Right, and like I said, this is, this is how I at least try to, to read and study the Bible on my own. So uh, that's the first thing I wanted to say about it, about reading the Bible. Just read it on your own. Find a method in a way that works for you to really dive in and internalize what's, who Jesus is in the pages of Scripture. So that's number one. Second thing I wanted to say about reading our Bibles, knowing Jesus there in the pages, is to do it with other people. Do it with other people. We need one another to help us stay on track, right? We often have, like I said, tunnel vision. We have blinders. We make assumptions. We have our own desires that can cause us to see things a certain way or to miss something else that's on the page. But when we come to it together, we can help fill in those gaps for one another as we lead one another towards Jesus. Because so often our own perspective is so limited. So I'd encourage you to read the Bible with other people. You can do that in a couple of ways. You can uh, read books, listen to podcasts or videos from teachers and, and experts who you trust and who are faithful in their relationship with the Lord and saturate yourself in those, in those thinkers and along with others as they studied it too. That's one way to do it. Another way you can do it is by joining with one of the ministries we have here, part of our church. We've got community groups, men's and women's Bible studies. We've got uh, courses and classes. We've got youth group. We've got kids ministry. We've got lots of opportunities to do this together, to come along one, with one another as the fellowship devoted to knowing Jesus together, right? This last, this last year and a half has, has really... <laughs> We don't have to keep hammering this, but separated us from one another in so many ways. And in doing so, it's forced us to connect and reconnect in new ways, right? Especially utilizing online platforms. And many of our groups, our community groups and, and Bible studies have found a home online temporarily. And some of them, maybe for a longer haul, have found a home online uh, our Sunday morning worship services, they're being live streamed. We'd never live streamed before. We, so we said, hey, we got to keep doing this together. We got to live stream so at least we can find a way to connect even when we're apart. So even, even when we're forced apart, we've found ways to keep connected and keep doing this thing together because it's so important. But a time has come, and many of you know this, and it's still coming when we can be together again physically. Like we're in this room today, many of us, in North Avenue. We're together, worshiping. We've got upcoming events and Bible studies and community groups. 
And I want to say to everybody, whether you're in this room or at North Ave or online, um, keep an eye out for opportunities to be together again. We don't want you to feel unwise or unsafe in your decisions, but we also know that there is such a high value of doing this together, of being together, of sitting at Jesus' feet along with one another and knowing him together. So I just want to say to everybody, keep an eye out and find those opportunities where you can continue to connect. Whether it's Sunday mornings at events, like I said, or at some of those uh, groups and Bible studies, check out our church website or church center for some of those opportunities where we can sit and do this together, sit at Jesus' feet together. We don't want you to miss out. We'll talk more about this doing it together thing next week in a different way, but, but just for now, I want you to be thinking and praying about that. How can I start to sit at Jesus' feet along with others? Do it together. Uh, We're going to, let's wrap up now. Come to the end. Like the 12, Jesus calls us in close and he invites us to sit at his feet, to sit close, to lean in and to learn from him and to see everything from this new perspective of grace fulfilled in his coming, his death, and his resurrection. He invites us to sit at his feet so that we can, we can look beyond the law-keeping. So we can see that the whole world, the nations, are awaiting redemption, that they're not doomed or outside of God's favor, but we're awaiting that redemption. And he invites us in close to learn from him so that we can live for the sake of others instead of living for ourselves. For us to sit at Jesus' feet is to see things differently like the 12 did, through the lens of God's amazing, amazing grace. And through that, Jesus shows us a new way of thinking and living, right? With our eyes open, our feet set in a new direction because he has come and he has fulfilled everything the old way was waiting for so we can live and think and do in a new way from that perspective. And Jesus invites us in to sit close, Because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. Think about that for a sec. God of the universe wants you to know him. To be with him, right? To ask him questions, to hear his voice, to see him at work. He wants you to know him. And that, I think, is just amazing. That he invites us to sit close to know him. To be a disciple is to know him. To know him is to experience him. And that leads us down this path of of transformation and and of looking more like him in this ongoing process we call discipleship. So church, I just want to end by saying, let's continue to be committed to sitting close, to sitting at his feet and getting to know him, to learn from him, to learn about him, to see things like he sees them. And in doing that, I think we'll find that we are looking more and more like him every day as we go through that process of discipleship. So next week, we'll finish up with those other two key ingredients of discipleship that I mentioned earlier. Hope to see you all again back here next Sunday. Uh, And with that, church, let's stand and, and pray as we close. All right, God, it is uh, striking. Take it for granted that... You said, come, follow me. And and that doesn't just mean to follow in your wake, but it means to sit close, to journey with you, to know you, to 
to see you. You invite us in close. And the fact that you would do that, oh, almighty God, is, is really something. I'm not sure we deserve it. But you said, no, come. So Lord, as we uh, all come closer to you, as we all sit at your feet and, and live our lives in the process of discipleship, whatever that looks like for each of us at the moment, I pray for, for two things. Number one, that our ears would be open we wouldn't be clogging them up or letting things get in the way, but they would be open and attentive to you. And number two, Lord, I ask, we know you're doing this. We ask that you would speak, that your words would penetrate deep into our hearts and that we wouldn't just know about you, but we would know you. And in knowing you, live and look more like you. And not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world. The world that you have come to redeem. So God, this week, I pray that our ears would be open, your voice would be heard, and that as we live our lives, wherever we are at work, at play, at rest, we would know you there, and that we would live for you there, and we would look like you do there. Empower us to that end in your grace, we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Happy Father's Day. Great to see you. God bless you as you go this morning. Amen.